everybody to have a Bible and uh, to be able to follow along reading what we're teaching and uh, as we're reading it. So there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And, and then if you don't own a Bible, absolutely feel free to take that Bible home and uh, make it yours and make it a good friend because God wants it to be a good friend to you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I think I'm going to have some cards made up and put this on it. This is a fabulous description of us as Christians that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that it is to us of yourself and of your ways and of your plans for our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would just freshly fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh consciousness of his presence in this room and in our own individual hearts. And help us to hear his voice today, Lord. Speak to us through your word, we pray, individually, personally. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an encouragement to Christians who were either in the middle of a great trial or great difficulty or great suffering, or uh, they were either already in that condition or those things were <clears throat> quickly approaching them in their lives. And the suffering uh, that they were enduring uh, took many, many forms, and one of which was persecution uh, for their faith in the Lord Jesus and in their endeavor to be obedient to his commands and to the life that he has called us to as Christians. And part of the persecution that was meted out against uh, these Christians and against us as we endeavor to live the same kind of life for Christ one of the forms that the persecution took was this thing called rejection. And we notice that Peter speaks of, uh, uses this word rejected in the passage concerning Jesus once in verse 4 and then again in verse 7. And he does it in making the point 
that if Jesus faced rejection for being faithful to his father's call, then we will uh, also face rejection as we endeavor to be faithful to God's call upon our lives. We want to notice the imagery of Jesus that's repeated here, the imagery of Jesus being described as a chief cornerstone there in verses 6 and 7, and also the imagery where God describes us as Christians as being living stones. Now, this description of Jesus as a chief cornerstone is a description that has uh, considerable Old Testament roots. For instance, in Psalm 118, a a very, very messianic psalm, uh, the psalmist wrote, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 28, and he said, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not make haste. And each of those passages ascribing this imagery of a cornerstone to the promised uh, and coming Messiah at that time. Jesus applied these prophecies to himself in Matthew chapter 21 when he said to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, he said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And what Jesus was doing in speaking to the Jewish religious leaders in this way was he was reminding them uh, of uh, this that God had prophesied long, long ago that the builders, translation, the leaders of Israel would reject the coming Messiah when he came into the world and that they, in their rejection of Jesus, were merely fulfilling the prophetic scriptures in doing so. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are the leaders. You are the builders. You've been called by God to build something spiritual within this nation. And you are doing exactly what the psalmist declared you would do a thousand years earlier. In rejecting me, you are rejecting your Messiah. It's fascinating that Jesus was very, very popular among the common people. So the psalmist doesn't say that the builders or the leaders and everyone in Israel will reject the Messiah when he comes, because that wasn't what happened when Jesus came. The common people heard Jesus gladly, the Bible teaches. The multitudes were so large that they were very hard for him even to be heard as he taught and as he ministered to them. But the leaders Almost without exception, not quite, but almost without exception, 
uh, were, com- were completely united in their rejection of Jesus and their opposition uh, to him. The Apostle Paul, in writing his letter to the church at Ephesus, he also ascribes the imagery of a chief cornerstone to Jesus. Peter does it also here in, in his first epistle. And so all of this tells us that there must be something about this imagery of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. It must be very, very important to the Holy Spirit in developing our understanding of Jesus. So you sit here today and some to chief cornerstone, chief cornerstone. Uh, some of us might be thinking, you've already lost me. I have no idea how in the world that connects to Jesus in any way, uh, much less what it's intended to communicate. And that isn't unusual, and that's why Peter addresses it in his epistle. Somehow, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, is intended to communicate something important to us to know about him. And so what does it mean when Jesus is described as the chief cornerstone? Well, the chief cornerstone was a, uh, is kind of a construction term. It had to do with construction in those days. And the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in the building of any building. And so every, that, that stone would be put in its place, and then the foundation would begin to be built in relationship to that. Now, in those days, they didn't back up the big cement trucks and then pour out a cement foundation. In those days, uh, they used rocks to uh, build a foundation. So they would take these great large rocks that would be part of the foundation, and then upon these larger rocks, they would then progressively build smaller and smaller uh, rocks upon those until you would have a wall, and then you would attach your roof uh, to that building. They used stone for building in Israel even to this day, because stone is very, very plentiful uh, in Israel, and wood is comparatively rare and, and thus very, very uh, expensive. Concerning the cornerstone in ancient times, it, it's intended to speak of three things. First, as the cornerstone, because it was the first stone laid in the foundation of a building, it was by far the single most important stone in the building. Second, every other stone in the building was measured off of the cornerstone. Every other stone that would be placed in those walls would be measured and placed in alignment with the cornerstone. And as a result of that third, Every other stone that made up that building had a relationship with the cornerstone. As all, they were all, it was all tied together. Every stone in that building had a relationship to that cornerstone. And only as those three things were true of a building was a building or a home then safe and sound to go into. If those three things weren't true, that relationship wasn't true to the cornerstone, then you would have a house that was unsafe and they might as well tear the thing down because it would be a danger to anybody that uh, entered in. And what the Holy Spirit is declaring is that what is true of a cornerstone to a building, God intends to be true of Jesus in every single human life 
in this world. Number one, he is intended to be the single most important stone or part of each and every one of our lives. Number two, just as every other stone in a building was tied to that cornerstone, had a relationship to that cornerstone, every single one of us is intended to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And then third, we are intended to measure our lives off of every part of our lives, to measure that off of the cornerstone off of his life in order to make sure that our life is square or that it is true. And so as Christians in this relationship with the cornerstone of Jesus, and, and then what I do is I true my life or I um, square my life uh, off of his. So I test my thoughts after his thoughts. Uh, I test my speech after his speech. I test my actions after his actions. I test my attitudes after his attitudes. And I bring them in line, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in line with him. And what will be the result? Um, what does Jesus bring to a life that makes him their chief cornerstone, makes him the most important part of our life? Well, he provides them a solid foundation for our lives. He brings a stability into our lives that we would never otherwise know. He brings a completeness to our lives. He holds our lives together. He produces a life that is solid, sure, safe, and beautiful. Isn't Christianity terrible? What a horrible life. <laughs> This is what the cornerstone produces. Now, in addition to all of this, when our lives are lived in this kind of a relationship with Jesus, it allows Jesus to then use us to impact other people in this world by bringing them into contact with him. The Bible teaches that every one of us as Christians, we are living stones. He speaks of it there in verse 5. You say, what is it? Uh, living stones. I, there was a Christian band that came together and they called themselves the Living Stones. I didn't know if it was Dr. Livingstone or Living Stones that I was coming to see or what. But when the Bible speaks of us as living stones, we think, what in the world? How am I a living stone? The Bible declares that as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And when the Bible speaks of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Greek word that is used there refers to the absolute, the holy of holies of the Old Testament uh, temple. And any kind of even a surface reading of the Old Testament, you read through the law and, and the prophets and the great emphasis that is placed upon that holy of holies and that ancient temple and and, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and it represented the presence of God and the high priest, and only the high priest could go in there, and he could only go in there one day out of the year, and only after offering a sacrifice for his own sin. In other words, all of it intended to communicate, this is off the graph holy in terms of real estate on planet Earth. And then God describes us as Christians 
in those very terms. And we are the holy of holies because God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It was the Holy Spirit that made the temple special. It was the Holy Spirit that made the temple holy. If you took the Holy Spirit away, the presence of God away from that ancient temple, you just ended up with another stone building in Israel. But it was the presence of God and the Holy Spirit that made all of that special. And, and so that Old Testament temple, it represented the presence of God. It was a place where man could go to meet with God. It communicated to the whole world that God loved the world and that he wanted a relationship with man. It communicated the holiness of God. The temple was a place to come and learn about God. And it was a place to come into contact with his glory and a place to come into contact with his power. And now because the Holy Spirit doesn't live in a building somewhere in the Middle East, but he lives inside of Christians, every Christian scattered across the whole face of the earth. Nobody has to get on a plane and fly a transatlantic flight in order to get to Israel and go to some kind of a stone temple there in order to receive these things uh, from God. All they need to do to experience these things is to just simply find a Christian somewhere who is in a stone cornerstone relationship with God. And when you find a Christian that's in that kind of a relationship, now when you run into that Christian, you're in contact with the presence of God. It's a, that life becomes a place to meet God, to learn of His desire to have a relationship with all human beings, to learn about His holiness and His nature, to learn about His ways and His wisdom. And it, that Christian becomes a touchstone to come into contact with God's glory and to come into contact with God's power. And all of that happens not through a building any longer in this new covenant that we're in. It happens through Christians all over the world. I'll tell you, there isn't a richer life that can be lived than to know God ourselves personally and then to be used by God to make him known. To other people. So I ask ourselves. Why in the world would Peter bring all of this up. In a letter. Written. To suffering Christians. What in the world does this have anything to do. With suffering Christians. And the reason is this. Because as we measure our lives off of Jesus's life. The result is always going to be that we're going to become more and more like him. And the more and more like him we become, then the more we will be despised and rejected by the same kind of people that despised and rejected him 2,000 years ago. We believe in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Sometimes I think that we forget that Jesus didn't live a long life of teaching and doing miracles until one day he died a natural, peaceful death at the age of 90. <laughs> well, that's not a description of Jesus' life. 
He died a terrible and cruel death at the hands of his enemies. The consequence of being a living stone in a relationship with a cornerstone, the consequence of being a Christian in a living, growing relationship with Jesus is that we're going to experience the same kind of rejection that he experienced. And that's just the fact of the matter. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus was rejected by men, though absolutely perfect. No fault in him. Never said one thing wrong. His whole life. Never thought anything wrong. Never did anything wrong. Absolutely faultless. His whole life. Perfect in every way. What can be the reason for man's rejection of Jesus if there's no fault in him? There's no legitimate cause for rejection to be found in him or his life or his teaching. Well, we're told the reason why he's rejected even today, despite being perfect. And it's disobedience, which is mentioned in both verse 7 and verse 8. Behind all rejection of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his call to follow him, behind all rejection of Jesus is a refusal to be obedient to his life and his example and his teaching. And Jesus declared of all rejection of himself by every single man and woman who does so. He described it this way in John chapter 3. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But he didn't stop talking there. He went on and said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why wasn't Jesus sent into the world to condemn the world? Because it was already condemned, already under sin. What the world needed is salvation. And then Jesus moved on and he spoke. And he said, He who believes in him, speaking of himself, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light, speaking of himself, has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, he comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It's important to realize that man's rejection of Jesus means absolutely nothing in heaven. Means nothing. An individual's rejection of Jesus is no reflection upon Jesus at all. But it is always a very poor reflection upon the person who is doing the rejecting. There is something very, very wrong with a person who rejects Jesus. And God knows every, he knows the heart of every human being, the mind of every human being. He knows all of our past. He knows all of our secrets. And when he looks at every human being, in all of history, past, present, 
and in the future, and he looks at any and all rejection of his son. He says it all comes out of darkness. It comes out of some moral darkness, some love for sin, some darkness of the mind or of man's thinking, some pride or some arrogance or some selfishness where I see myself as smarter than God. Or my thoughts or my ideas as being superior to God's thoughts or ideas. Or my will being more important than God's will. It's all darkness. Likewise, we need to realize that man's rejection of us for simply following Christ and obeying Christ as God commands us to do is never a poor reflection upon us but always a poor reflection on the person who rejects us for simply following this perfect Christ. And at times when we are suffering the rejection of family, that's real as a Christian, the rejection of friends, that's real as a Christian, colleagues, co-workers, that's real as a Christian, simply because of our faith in Jesus and that faith demonstrated in being obedient to his teaching. Sometimes we just need someone like Peter to come alongside us in the midst of that rejection, put his arm around us and reassure us of the fact that there isn't anything wrong with you. Don't you change. There's something wrong with them. They need to change. Jesus never changed. He never compromised ever his life or his message in order to bring an end to this kind of rejection. And neither must we. Jesus was rejected for being faithful to God. And we will be rejected as well for being faithful to God. We must never expect... This world that we live in, to treat Jesus who now lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit any differently than it treated him 2,000 years ago when he was here in his public ministry. But oftentimes we do expect a different kind of result. I don't know about you, but. I certainly thought it when I was a new Christian, and I fall prey to it subsequently as well. We just think to ourselves, if I just live a good Christian life, if I just be a good, moral, obedient, growing in Christ kind of person in this world, surely everyone is going to like me. And I believe that. I think that for a moment. And God does this amazing miracle in our lives when we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And He makes us into a new creation. There is no other explanation for the fact that He has completely changed our lives. We're ten times better a person than we were a hundred times, a thousand times better person than we were before we ever knew Christ. 
And you'd think they would throw a party everywhere. Everyone that knew us before and after, that it would just be a series of parties that we would go to. Everybody celebrating the great change that God has uh, wrought in our lives. And then I'm shocked when I'm rejected by family members that don't want anything to do with me anymore. And I'm shocked at how many friendships are gone in a 24-hour period, just disappear. I'm shocked at how in one day I can be wildly popular at work and then become a Christian in the workplace, become aware of it. All of a sudden, there's a group of people that doesn't want anything to do with me ever again. And you carry that out into a school. You carry that out wherever you want to carry that. And that's real. And that happens in our lives as, as Christians. And Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And that's the fact of the matter. I either choose to become more like Christ. And this is a consequence that comes with that. Or I maintain these relationships at the expense of becoming more like Christ. And that's the choice that we all face from the moment we become a Christian onwards. Now, most often this kind of thing occurs pretty early in our Christian life. We become a Christian and then all of a sudden these relationships all get put to the test. Family members. Now you get the cold shoulder. Again, you're, you are a indescribably better person for having become a Christian. Still, doesn't matter. Don't want anything to do with you. The friends, they disappear. You may be in a place this morning. You come and you give your life to the Lord and you begin to walk with the Lord. You say, I lost all of my friends. <laughs> they weren't very good friends, were they? And sometimes when you come to Christ out of a background, it's just bad people. Just evil people. You come to know Christ and you begin to walk with Him. He begins to change your life. And then you lose all of your friends. You needed to lose all those friends. Because He's going to give you new friends. And He's going to conform you into the image of Christ. And then maybe further down the line, He'll reintroduce you into their lives when you can be an influence on them instead of the other way around. But that's just the way that it goes. I remember when Karen and I first became Christians, and uh, people thought we were crazy. <laughs> and you know, so many people, they don't think it's going to last. I remember at work, I worked for the phone company. I forget now, so many years ago, whether I was a lineman or a splicer at the time. 
But I mean, word got out real quick. Kyle's got religion. And everybody knew pretty quickly. And then cordial distance, the whole deal. And on one hand, I don't blame I don't blame people for that because, you know, you live long enough and you endure enough 48 hour Christians. They're Christians for 48 hours and then they're right back partying. And so there's just little respect. And a lot of people just want to pull back. They may not want to be witness to or that kind of thing. They want to pull back and and they just want to see if this thing's going to stick longer than a month or longer than six months or longer than whatever. I don't blame people for that. I recognize that's going to happen. Here you are, you get saved, and now people walk all the way around the plant to avoid your cubicle. (laughs) That's the way it goes. Karen's mom, we got saved, and the change was so dramatic in our lives. And the priority that God became in our lives She came to church not to get saved. She came to church to find out what cult we'd gotten involved in. What in the world I had done to that daughter of hers. She comes to church and she's born again. Her dad would watch us for years. Stubborn old Norwegian. What's the old saying? You can tell, always tell a Norwegian. You just can't tell them much. That's Karen's dad. They got one of the states is called the Show Me State. That's him. Words mean absolutely nothing to him. And he watched our lives for years before he gave his life to the Lord. They didn't distance themselves from us. I don't put them in that category. But just to realize that that rejection occurs. We don't put them on the hate list or something like that. But we just have within our heart this desire and this determination by the grace of God that this isn't going to be a three-month thing in my life or a six-month thing in my life or a six-year thing in my life. I want the people that thought I was nuts and a flake to watch me live this life all the way until God takes me to heaven and for him to use that. The funny thing about it, and one of the things that makes the rejection worthwhile, because we care about the people that reject us, is that they do watch. Not all of them with honest hearts, but some of them do. It's funny as the years would go on, the months would go on, Somebody catch me over by the tool barn or something. I say, I need to talk to you a little bit. My wife just left me last night after 32 years of marriage and this and that and the whole. And they they knew I was a place to come to to find out about God. We put them on our prayer list. We pray for them for the rest of our lives. But this is the kind of thing that happens. And it's real. The longer you walk with the Lord, it's like all your friendships and everything are kind of get sifted through. So it's not like the shock that it is and, and the cleaning of house like it occurs when we're brand new Christians. Some of you, you come to know the Lord from a, 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 a deep Christian heritage. 
There isn't as much of this that happens to somebody that's just coming out and you're the first Christian in your family, the second or third Christian in your family. And all this is real. It's impossible to grow in Christ-likeness and not become an offense to those who refuse to do that for themselves. And it's impossible to live a life of obedience to Jesus without becoming an offense to those who refuse to do so themselves. And one of the reasons is, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that when God changes our lives, and he changes our lives, if I ever backslid, and you saw me on the street somewhere backslidden, the 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 one thing I could never, ever deny is that God did a miracle in my life. I know the change that he has made in my life. It's not psychosomatic. It is not mind over matter. It is not positive thinking. It is nothing of me. A miracle occurred when God came into my life to begin to conform me into the image of Christ. So there's, there's absolutely no doubting that in our mind. This isn't something we did to ourselves. We had a plan. We were going to end up in this kind of a place with this kind of godly character and that God was going to have this kind of a place in our life. God did all of that in our lives. Then when he does that miracle in our lives, undeniable miracle, one of the things that happens is then our lives begin to bring a conviction concerning sin into a marriage and into a home and into a workplace and into a recreational sporting hobby, into a workplace, all these things, these places that we go. And when people watch the miracle that God has done in our lives and they realize there is no other explanation for the change that I have seen in my brother or in my sister or in my mom or my dad or my son or my daughter, except the fact that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day and is living inside of them. That now brings conviction into the lives of other people. Because our lives then testify to the fact that there is a different kind of life that can be lived than the junky, crummy, carnal life that we lived before. And it communicates that there's an alternative to living that former life. And it also communicates that God is righteous when he holds us responsible for continuing to live that crummy life. And failing to put our trust in Christ and have our life changed too. And the heart of man is so evil, can be so wicked, that they would rather destroy the life that's been changed than allow God to change their own life. I think about Lazarus in the New Testament, the brother of Mary and Martha. They lived there in Bethany. Friends of Jesus. He dies. Jesus comes to the... Well, he missed the funeral. He's in the ground for three days. He comes and he raises him from the dead on the fourth day. 
And then later on in the biblical accounts, Jesus is enjoying a meal in the house with Lazarus and Martha and Mary and a whole bunch of other people that are there and enjoying the ministry of Jesus. And we're told that the religious leaders of the Jews, rather than turning to Christ on the basis of the miracle or celebrating in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, They were so incensed by the miracle that they plotted Jesus' death. Okay, I understand that on some level. But not only did they plot Jesus' death, but they then plotted the death of Lazarus. You cannot be an object of God's glory and God's power without then ending up on the enemy list of a certain kind of person. That's just the way that it is. And then to be rejected by them. But Peter, and I close with this, is not a one-minute closing, so don't get excited. It's not long, so. But Peter then closes this section by reminding us of some of the blessings that are ours because of our faith in Jesus. Say, what could make all of this rejection worth it? So I'll list a few for you. And, and see if they don't make any rejection by man more than bearable. In verse 5, again, we're living stones. We have a living relationship with the chief cornerstone. I'll tell you, you ask me whether I value the acceptance of man or the acceptance of Jesus. And that is a very, very easy choice for me. I don't want the acceptance of any man or any woman or any child who hates Jesus and despises the hope and the change that he brings to human lives. I'll bear that that rejection by man and that kind of man is a badge of honor. He tells us second in verse 2 that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Maybe a lot of these Christians that Peter was writing to no longer had access to the physical temple in Jerusalem because of their faith in Christ. God said, all right, don't sweat it. I'll make you the temple. I'll put the Holy Spirit in your life in a way that he is no longer on that temple. And he makes us the temple of the Holy Spirit. I would never exchange the presence and the work of God's Holy Spirit in my life even for a day in order to gain the acceptance of someone who rejects me because of my faith in Christ. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I'm noble or I'm proud or I'm this or I'm that. I have come to so depend on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. I wouldn't make it a day without him. I wouldn't want to experience a day without him. He tells us in verse 5 further that we are able to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying that we have been saved out of a life of insignificance. And we have been saved into a life of eternal significance. Our lives are a blessing to God. They're making a difference for God as opposed to what we lived before, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. 
the emptiness of that former life. He tells us in verse 9 that we're a chosen generation to realize that no matter who does or doesn't accept us, we have the confidence that God has chosen us, that we have his acceptance. The world may not want us. In some cases, our family, our friends may not want anything to do with us anymore, but God wants us and he has chosen us. He tells us also in verse 9 that we are a royal priesthood. We're not only the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're the priests there as well. The Old Testament priests, they committed their lives to offering sacrifices that were just a shadow, a type, a picture of Jesus who was to come. And they loved being priests. They loved being a part of the Aaronic priesthood. It was the privilege of their life. And here, the most ordinary, common Christian anywhere in the world is a part of a higher priesthood, a, high, a royal priesthood in comparison because we deal with the substance of which all those things were a type. When we are able to say to friends and family members in the world, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The twofold office of the Old Testament priest was this. Number one, to represent God before the people. To live a holy life, a different kind of life. To represent God before the people. That's one of the great privileges, again, of being conformed into the image of Christ, being rejected as a result of that. It's a stamp of approval upon our lives that we are living a different kind of life, a life that represents God in this world. It's a stamp of approval in our lives. But that's what the high priest was called to, to represent God before the people, just as God has called us to do the same before this world. But the second thing that the priest was called to do was then to represent the people before God through prayer and intercession, the private side of the Christian life and lifting people up in the needs of people, even those that reject us, praying for their salvation, lifting them up to the Lord. He says in verse 9 that we are a holy nation. Israel had ceased to become a holy nation. They were a religious nation. But they were no longer a holy nation. You can be religious and not be holy. They were so religious and unholy, they're about to crucify the Son of God. They're about to kill the Messiah. That's how holy of a nation they were at the time of Christ. We have the privilege of living a holy life as Christians. And it's a privilege to live freed from the bondage of sin. Not from temptation. We're all tempted. But to live free from the bondage of sin. And you offer me a choice of being able to live a holy life but experience the rejection of men. Or having the praises of men but doomed to live an unholy life. The choice is easy for us, isn't it? And then he tells us in verse 9, we are his own special people. Claims us as his own. There have been times in this Christian life. Where I go to put my head down on the pillow. And I don't know who my friend is. I don't know whose friend. I don't know whose foe. I don't know any of it. I don't, everything is so murky and so confused and so mixed up. 
I don't know. But I can put my head down on that pillow and I know God is my friend. And I know that God has chosen me and claims me as his own. And that's the portion that each of us has as Christians. We've been called out of darkness, the Bible says here in verse 9, and into his marvelous light. This is talking not only about sin. Here we were before we came to know Christ. We're groping along in darkness and in sin and in a life of shame. We don't know that there's anything, any life that's different from that life. He comes into our life and it's like the scales go off of our eyes and we see clearly. We see things lit, magnificently lit. And it's one of the great things about becoming a Christian is the ability to see things clearly in context of eternity. Then he says in verse 10, once we were not a people, (laughs) but now we are the people of God. Others may reject us. Peter is saying God has brought us into his very family. And then again in verse 10, we have obtained mercy. In other words, we're engaged in a relationship with God, not on the basis of justice, but on the basis of his Mercy. In other words, we don't have to fear his rejection in this relationship. He's not going to we make a mistake. He's not going to realize he's made a terrible mistake and uh, change his mind about us and throw us back into the pond. <laughs> when he brought us into the family, he knew that he was getting a project. And then in verse 6, and I close with this, he tells us as Christians we will never be put to shame. In other words, no one will ever be disappointed for having made Jesus their Savior and their Lord and for having followed him fully into the life that he calls us to live in this world. And God will make sure that none of us are ashamed of having made that choice. And that's a good thing for Christians who are paying a tremendous price for their faith to be reminded of there's no shame in this life it's the greatest life that we can live as Christians we do not deny Jesus whatever rejection we may face in any other relationship in our life our relationship with Jesus is the single most important relationship in our life Jesus said, Whosoever therefore confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And he who denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so when we're rejected for righteousness' sake in this world, Peter is saying we need to remember that we are in very, very good company, elite company. We're in the company of of Jesus himself. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that this morning. You say, what, and lose every friend and family member? Yeah. That's what Jesus calls you to do. He calls you to do the right thing. And then what unfolds, unfolds. But you still won't be ashamed of having made him your Lord and having made him your Savior. 
Nothing compares to the life that he has planned for you. The life that we live apart from him is comparative darkness. It is no life. It is existence. And it is a life of shame. Why not find out? Discover the life that he has planned for you by giving your life to him today. Say, I don't know if I'll be able to withstand even the rejection that you're talking about here. He'll come inside of you, make you a miracle, and he'll give you the grace to withstand it. It's an interesting thing about this whole Christian life and becoming a Christian. God does not raise weak people. You're looking for a challenge. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for a bar that's high. You've been made for it. We've been created for it. People, I mean, deep down inside, innately, people are looking for that. And God says, I call you to it. You take the step and I'll make sure you're successful in it. But this is what you've been made for. Now find out what life is really about instead of the swamp you're living in. And he'll do it. And he loves you enough to do that. It's the greatest life a person can live. Not the easiest one. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I wouldn't trade it for what he makes us into. As we just simply, day by day, live that life that he's called us to. What an adventure What a blessing lies out in front of you that is just a prayer away, just a surrender away. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on it. It says prayer so you can identify them easily. They'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with the chief cornerstone today. And then what a life unfolds to say nothing of the life to come. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, thank you for your word and we thank you for all of the things that it does inside of us. All of the major changes that it makes, all of the fine tuning that it makes within our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for this instruction of your word in this area of rejection, bringing perspective to our lives when we face it and we all face it. Lord, we just want you to know, just in in spirit and in truth from our hearts, from this little place in the world today, that we count it a privilege to know you, to obey you, to walk with you at whatever the cost on any level. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his victory. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that is found in him, the relationship that's found in him. Thank you this morning for how good you have been to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of being able to live this life And we thank you in the name of the one who made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.